All right. In terms of announcements, next Thursday night there will not be any Bible class. See, we've got y'all on an every other week schedule right now. Okay, last week I was in Arizona the week before we met, and, and next week we're off, and then the next week we'll be back both Tuesday and Thursday, and then the week after that, no Tuesday night because we'll be at pre-trip. So Thursday night gets to go three, three or four in a row. You got that? There'll be a test whether or not you show up. All right, so that is, uh, that's the schedule. No Thursday night Bible class next week because it is Thanksgiving, and that way it is important that people spend time with their families not feel like they have to rush off to Bible class. Uh, also, uh, pre-trips coming up in about three weeks on December 5th through 7th. It's the 31st annual uh, pre-trib conference. And uh, I'd always, I always encourage anybody and everybody to come go to that. And then we will have our Christmas dinner and sign-ups and things like that on December 11th. Now, on Tuesday night, I made a reference to uh, Herman's condition, Herman Maddox up in D- Dallas, that is, and that is what I was told up to that point. I, I get things second, third hand, so it's like what we used to call gossip. I think some people called it telephone, but y'all know what I mean. Um, so anyway, then yesterday morning, I got a text from John Hintz that Herman is being operated on now. That's because whoever sends out the prayer alerts needs to learn how to exegete their prayer alerts from that church up there because they say Herman is getting operated on. Herman's brain, Herman will have brain surgery. Or, or, no, they said er, Herman is having brain surgery. That's all they said, which communicates to anybody who exegetes that it's a present tense verb and that's going on right now. Except it wasn't going on yesterday. He was going through various preparatory tests, and he will be having surgery the week after the week following Thanksgiving. So be in prayer for that. Um, they're not sure exactly what they're going to be able to accomplish, but it's it's a dicey, dicey situation. So please be, be in prayer uh, for Herman and for his wife, Judith. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're ready to focus on God's Word, that God the Holy Spirit can teach us and store it in our memory so that we can recall it in time of need. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your grace, your goodness, your provision for us. And Father, we especially remember uh, Herman Maddox and his, um, as he deals with these very difficult situations related to stroke and bleeding on the brain and the doctors. It's just amazing the technology we have today. But Father, his life as always is in your hands. As each one of us, you have our days numbered and you determine the time, the manner, and place of our death. And we pray that they would be able to do something and that he would have a better quality of life than what he is having now. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill as they perform surgery. Now, Father, we pray for us as we study your word today that we can come to understand some aspects of Scripture a little more clearly, think through what you say in your word and how to properly understand the gospel. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to look at this question, what is the gospel? 
This is a very important topic. It's the word gospel is mentioned nine times in this epistle. That's a lot. So you'd think that this epistle has something to do with the gospel. And it's mentioned several times in relation to the Philippians and their partnership with Paul in the gospel and in the gospel ministry. So since it is used so much, we need to take a little time uh, to look at that. So just by way of review, the last time we did an overview of Philippians 2, verses 12 down to 26. That's the second half of the introduction. Uh, the introduction following the salutation in verses 1 and 2 goes from 3 through 11, uh, three through seven is the prayer, uh, that he has for those Philippian believers. And then, uh, that's three through eight. And then nine, ten, and eleven is prayer of, th- of thankfulness. And then, as I pointed out last time, twelve through twenty-six picks up on all of the major ideas in verses three through uh, eleven and expands those in terms of what Paul himself is doing in terms of the gospel uh, gospel ministry. So last time we're going to look at that, look at the expansion of the gospel, talking about that because that is the partnership that the uh, Philippians are in. They are financially supporting the Apostle Paul. And I said last time we, we would not get to this third point, which was defining the gospel and so we'll be looking at it probably tonight and in two weeks because it we tonight I want to go through parts of it and then we'll come back and look at more detail in a couple of passages. And last time we saw that the essence of what Paul was saying in verse 12 is that even though all these things had happened to him and from the outside it looked like the gospel ministry was being restrained or restricted because Paul had been a prisoner a couple of years in, in Israel. Then he was on his uh, voyage to Rome, shipwreck, and then two years house arrest. So close to five years he has not been able to travel. And so there was those in Ephesus, those in Philippi, who are somewhat concerned about what is going to happen. How can the church grow if Paul can't be out there? See, every generation has had people putting their focus on a single person as being vital to uh, the expansion of the church. And there's, as um, even Elijah uh, fell into depression over that, and God said, no, there's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. And so we need to remember that, that, that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of churches in this country. They may not be, they're not the big mega churches that get the, uh, get on television and get all of the press reports and everything else. The only press they get is from conservatives who are identifying them as false teachers. But for the most part, uh, you just have small congregations of faithful believers studying the word, and they are they run throughout this uh, throughout this nation. And so we've looked at these areas and know that God is in control, and He is the one who grows the church. He is the one who expands His church, and He knows exactly what is going on because He knows all the facts, and we don't. So all things work together for good. So when we come to this topic tonight, as we look at verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, where Paul is thankful for their fellowship or their partnership in the gospel, and then that is echoed in verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So the gospel, those are two of the times that the word gospel is used, so we need to understand it. Now, some people may say, well, well, what's so difficult about understanding the gospel? Well, you'd be amazed, absolutely amazed. In a 1970 uh, Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the theological journal that's published by Dallas Seminary, Dr. John Whitmer, who was one of the uh, really solid 
teachers, professors in the systematic theology department had been teaching since the 40s, and he was the librarian, and just a wonderful man. And he w- w- his role usually was writing uh, book reviews and periodical reviews on different articles that had come out that would be published in the journal. So three articles came out that year that were published in, um, I believe they were published in the Expository Times. And three different men are writing three different articles entitled, What is the Gospel? And Whitmer begins by saying, I never realized stating what the gospel is could be so difficult until I read these three articles. Macquarie and Davies never did get around to stating what the gospel is. They spent most of their time, they spent their entire articles explaining what the gospel is not and why it is not what it is not. Okay? Three articles, that, that and, and I find that to be true when you look at a lot of articles, they never really come down to it. And there's a reason for that. But the reason for these guys is given a little later. He says, uh, regarding the article by David H.C. Reed, he says, uh, quoting the author, The gospel, as I understand it, is thus a unique spiritual force operating on the thoughts and lives of men in every age. It is based on the specific past event of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Notice he doesn't explain the relation of those parts to the gospel. Uh, It is recognized in the notes of liberation, joy, and hope in the lives of those who live by it day by day. And it points to a future where Christ is Lord. It, referring to the gospel, is not primarily a philosophy to be conveyed by argument or an ideology to be accepted on authority, but a revelation that evokes, interesting word, evokes the response of faith. His concluding statement is, quote, I see the future hope in a recovery of the New Testament gospel as a saving power, and its application individually and socially to the needs of our disturbed and fractured world. What did he say? What did he say the gospel was? A lot of words, a lot of noise that meaneth nothing. Okay? So then I ran across in a more recent journal, in the Journal of Dispensational Theology, which is published um, by Tyndale Seminary, in a 2010 article written by Dr. Uh, Gary Gilley. And he writes, in the opening chapter, he is um, addressing a, 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 a book review written by, um, okay, well, I've lost his name, uh, by Greg Gilbert. He writes a book called What is the Gospel? In the opening chapter, the author addressed the heart of the matter by presenting the New Testament's teaching with regard to the good news. According to Gilbert, the gospel can be enveloped around four words, God, man, Christ, and response. So far, so good. In other words, man is accountable to God. His real problem is the rejection and rebellion against God. God's solution is found in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and humanity is responsible to respond to this message in repentance and faith. Well, he did pretty good till he got to the last sentence. And this is a big issue today. I mean, there are several things going on and debates going on as to the nature of repentance and what that means. And we'll talk about that eventually. Okay? So said another way, Gilly writes, Gilbert believes the gospel answers four crucial questions. Who made man? What is the problem of humanity? What is God's solution? And what makes all of this good news? He sort of slipped over this whole idea of repentance and faith. That's just such a difficult problem. In his review, Gilly also writes, 
Gilbert stated the response to the gospel message as the act of faith alone as understood through the inseparable acts of repentance and belief. But he hasn't defined repentance. But he sees that repentance and belief are inseparable. According to Gilly, and um, and I think and Gilly agrees with him, he has loud notes of lordship here. He wrote, a Christian is one, uh, this is um, Gilbert, a Christian is one who turns away from sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else to save him from sin and the coming judgment on page 73. He defined repentance as turning away from sin, hating it, and resolving by God's grace to forsake it even as we turn to him in faith. It's impossible to get that definition out of metanoia, which is a Greek word. That it's just impossible. It just it, it's how how are you going to do all, to say God? I'm going to forsake sin. It's it's a pathetic and very weak understanding of what sin is. It does not take into account mental attitude sins and how often our motivations come from mental attitude sins. I, I think some people, as they grow and mature as believers, they get frustrated because they, they, they don't think they're really growing. And I think what part of what happens is as we grow, we realize how profoundly sinful we are. And as our understanding of sin expands, we realize we're probably a lot worse than we ever thought we were. But then we come face-to-face with God's grace that he has provided for every one of those sins and that he has paid for them. And there's no sin that we can commit that shocks God, surprises God, or God says, oh, I forgot that one. I didn't do that. It fell by the wayside, so sorry, you're lost. Doesn't happen. So this idea of turning away from sin, hating it, that's works. That's emotional works. If you, you don't understand emotional mental attitude sins, then you've you got a problem understanding emotional sin. And that's, that's an emotional sin is to think that you can hate sin and you're not saved yet. You know, you haven't been regenerated because you're trying to do it by hating sin. Furthermore, Gilly writes, he says, if we understand repentance rightly, this is he's quoting Gilbert, If we understand repentance rightly, we'll see that the idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior but not Lord is nonsense. See, he's he's lordship. He never critiques the guy on that. And yet the guy he's critiquing has, has, has a false gospel. So he concludes by saying the real change produced by salvation will by necessity bear real fruit. That statement is the center of the problem with lordship salvation. Sanctification will necessarily follow uh, true faith. So that's what, what we see going on here. So as I quoted already, the gospel is used in one twelve, and it is the focal point. What do, do we mean by the gospel? We're going to see it eight more times. So what, is it, what does it mean? So what does the Bible teach about the gospel? Now, if you aren't aware of it, there are a lot of, of uh, conflicts within our circles over the nature of the gospel, not, in, in, not our tight circles like Chafer Seminary, but in terms of conserv- conservative evangelical Bible-believing Christians. There is, on the one hand, there is the debate that ha- that I've already referred to, which is lordship salvation, which grows out of an understanding of the fifth point, the P in tulip, the five points of Calvinism, T for total depravity, U for uh, uh, unconditional election, the L for limited atonement, the I for irresistible grace, and the P for perseverance. Perseverance of the saints, according to strict Dortian, that's from the Synod of Dort, Dortian Calvinism is that the person who truly has believed and has been regenerated, and usually they believe that regeneration precedes faith, uh, 
will persevere to the end. They may sin, they may sin a lot, they may turn away from the Lord temporarily, but they will persevere to the end uh, if they are truly saved. Uh, The bearing of fruit is where you know that your faith is truly a saving faith. That is the Lordship view. And then, uh, even though there have been people who have clearly taught and clarified and held to what we have come to call uh, the the free grace uh, understanding of the gospel, sometimes people just get into theological dead ends and problems because they try to, as one of my seminary professors used to say, try to slice the bologna too thin. They get into deep, deep, deep into the weeds, and usually what happens is they ask questions that aren't necessarily the right questions to ask, and it leads them into a dead-end problem. And, you know, this is like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, that implies you've been beating your wife. If you say no, then that means you're still beating your wife. Wrong questions can lead to bad answers. So some people have come along. This happened within the leadership of the Grace Evangelical Society. You could find elements of it actually in Zane Hodges' writings back to the early 70s. He didn't make a big deal about it, so it was easy to sort of gloss over it until things erupted around 2000 to 2006. So you have Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, John Niemela, several others who uh, are with the Grace Evangelical Society. Then you have the Free Grace Alliance, FGA. Now, a lot of people don't realize this because about two years before this exploded, the FGA got started. I was in one of the initial meetings when Fred Librand got a bunch of guys at pre-trib together and said, let's have breakfast tomorrow. I got some ideas. And so we did, and we talked about that there was a need for those who churches and pastors, missionaries that held to a free grace theology, that we needed to have uh, a more of an emphasis on missionaries de- developing missions and developing seminaries and Bible colleges and things of that nature. That wasn't the mission of GES. They were very academically oriented. So this was a good idea, so FGA started. Dennis Roxer was part of it. I was part of it. Several others were part of it. And um, and then this whole thing with GES and their um, some call it a minimalist gospel. Other call, others have called it a crossless gospel. Uh, they started uh, putting out some things in that nature, and so people, it created some problems, led to a split. At George Meisinger's church in Southern California, three of the elders went off the rails with GES and fired the guy who founded the church. You don't ever fire the pastor who founded the church. If you don't like it, you leave. But that's what they did, caused a split with uh, Chafer Seminary. And uh, that's part of the reason Chafer Seminary moved. And this happened across the board in church after church after church. It was just a horrible time period uh, because of this, as they were slicing the bologna so thin that they were uh, excluding people who didn't believe in their minimalist, crossless gospel. All you had to believe was that Jesus would save you. No mention of the cross is necessary. No mention of the resurrection is necessary. Just believing in Jesus. We'll talk about that a little later, but I don't want to get mired in that, so don't worry about that. So what does the Bible say about the gospel? A lot of people get confused, so we have to break this down to some simple things. First of all, the word in, in Greek is evangelion. You see the, over here on the far end of the sentence, you see it spelled at the beginning with an epsilon and an upsilon, an E and a U, it looks to English speakers. But that upsilon is sort of like the German pronunciation of W. It's pronounced by the Greeks as a V. So it's, it's evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism. Okay, 
So that's why I tend to pronounce it with a V, and people look at it and go, I don't see the V. Where's the V? The V is the upsilon. And this word basically means good news. It is translated as the gospel, which goes back to an old English word. So the uh, Greek lexicon, we always refer to as BDAG, is the third edition of the Art and Gingrich lexicon that's been updated and uh, revised, has two basic meanings. First of all, God's good news to humans, good news as proclamation. That's why many times you will see the verb form of this word translated as preaching the gospel. And and yet it it doesn't have a word for it just evangelion it's that's frequent in the book of Acts. Second is details related to the life and ministry of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. In other words, the gospels, the four gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the interesting thing about this this um, this word is it's also translated as bringing glad tidings are proclaiming glad tidings or proclaiming good tidings or proclaiming good news. You just have to look at the context to see uh, just as, just what it means. Now, the word is compro- comprised of two, two basic words. The EU prefix in, in Greek means something that is beneficial, something that is good. For example, uh, you have... Uh, the word eulogy, which comes from the gr- Greek prefix eu, attached to logos, which is the word. So it means a good word. So you give a, a eulogy at a funeral, it's saying something good about the person who died. So evangelism, you have angelion, which is the Greek word for a messenger, an angel, but it means messenger, and eu is something good. So it's a messenger that brings good news. That's the meaning of the basic meaning of the word. In the New Testament, evangelion is used 76 times in 73 verses. It's important in doing word studies like this to break them down. It's interesting. John, who writes the Gospel of John, which most Christians would say, well, if you're going to tell anybody who's not a believer to read a book oriented to evangelism, it would be the Gospel of John. He never uses the word gospel. Not in the Gospel of John, not in his epistles. It shows up in the mouth of an angel and revelation one time. So that's, it's used a lot, but it's an interesting spread. It's mostly used, 60 of its uses are by the Apostle Paul. So only 16 times outside of Pauline writings do we find it. In addition to just the word gospel, there are several key phrases that are used in the New Testament related to this good news proclamation. The term is only used, evangelion, is only used in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Luke doesn't use it in Luke, and he, uh, and Mark, I mean, and John doesn't use it at all. But there are phrases that are used. And it's important to study phrases. This was not something that was commonly done 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. It's with the advent of computers that you're able to do phrases. And a lot of times phrases mean more than the sum of the words. It's important to look at the phrase. Gospel of the kingdom is important. That's used by Matthew only. And Matthew 4.23, 9.35, and 24.14. And it is related to the message that John the Baptist gave and that Jesus initially proclaimed and that the disciples claimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was related to the messianic kingdom. It wasn't the gospel of the church age. It wasn't the gospel of the Old Testament. You have another phrase used by Mark in Mark 4.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what he says he is writing. So that is a very broad term. It covers the life of Christ, including his death, burial, and resurrection. But that's, that's a broad use of the word gospel. So gospel doesn't always mean the minimal amount of information a person needs to understand and believe in order to go to heaven. 
it is a broad term. Some contexts it's a more narrow term. Some contexts it doesn't apply at all to what's going on in the church age, like the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, another phrase is the gospel of God. Now, this is an interesting little thing because when you look at Mark one fourteen in the New King James Version, it reads, Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that in the oldest Greek manuscripts, but it says it in a, the vast majority of manuscripts, including a couple of the older ones. And so the bottom statement, preaching the gospel of God, that's in the New American Standard. The a couple of the older manuscripts don't have the kingdom of, but it, I think it should be there. And then um, in Mark one fifteen, you have the gospel again. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is important because this is one of the few times you have repent related to the gospel. But that was the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Why repent? Because this is a word that often is used in relation to a Hebrew word for turning, turning away from idols to the worship of the living God. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, after Deuteronomy 29 and the listing of the disciplines of God, it's a slightly different organization, but it summarizes the five uh, stages of divine discipline on a nation. And then at the beginning of Deuteronomy 30, it says, and when you turn back to the Lord, then God will restore all the Jews from all the nations of the world. So it's really focusing on that return of God bringing all the Jews, saved Jews, back to Israel at the end of the tribulation. So repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is announcing that the Messiah is coming, the king, and the millennium is about to start. But before it can start, you have to fulfill Deuteronomy 30, 1 and 2. You have to turn back to God. And so people who didn't turn back to God, and there weren't enough of them, the kingdom was postponed. So this message, repent and believe, the gospel is contextually related to the gospel of the kingdom. It's not related to the gospel of the church age. In Acts 20.24, Paul uses the phrase, the gospel of the grace of God. Now what's interesting is in his notes, C.I. Schofield sees these as slightly different versions of the gospel for different people at different times. I think he pushes the case too far. In Acts 20.24, Paul writes, I mean Luke writes, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. This is Paul talking. I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we know from looking at how Paul uses this phrase, the grace of God which was given to me, a number of other things, this all relates to the church age gospel. It is the greatest demonstration of the grace of God. John, in uh, the Gospel of John, the first chapter said, um, uh, grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. Now, there was grace and truth in the Old Testament, but not exemplified to the same degree that Jesus uh, ex- uh, revealed it in the Incarnation. Paul also uses the phrase, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, in Ephesians 1.13. In him, that is, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, I would translate that the message of truth, the go- which is defined as the gospel of your salvation. So that would be referring to the church age gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 6.15, you've shod your feet with the pr- preparation of the gospel of peace. When we believe in the gospel, we are reconciled to God and there is peace with God. There is no more enmity because the barrier, the sin barrier has been removed. 
So these are not separate Gospels, but they are talking about different facets of the Gospel of the Church Age. Now, that's important to understand because in no one place, and I'll repeat this several more times, in no one place does any writer of Scripture talk about all of the different facets of the gospel. The gospel is complex because sin is complex. And so because sin is complex, there are different manif- different facets to what takes place on the cross. So we'll talk about that. But these are not separate gospels. They're all talking about different aspects of the gospels. So now when we look at the New Testament and the use of the word evangelion. We, I said that it's used by Matthew. It's used by, by Mark. And in the book, and it's not used by Luke or John, in the book of Acts, which is written by Luke, the noun is used two times. It's used by Peter in Acts 15.7. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and believe. So that tells us he didn't say repent and believe like he did in Acts 2. Why did he say repent in Acts 2? We'll look at that next time in detail he said it because he's talking to a Jewish audience that needs to do what Deuteronomy 30 is talking about, turning away from the idols and turning to God. So here he is talking about the Gentiles, that they need to hear the word of the gospel and believe, Acts twenty twenty four. but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I did a detailed study on this, if you remember, at the beginning of Acts 3, where he talks about the grace of God which was given to me. That whole phrase is talking about his, not just his salvation, but at his salvation he is commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now Paul uses... Evangelion 60 times. Peter uses it one time. I have that reference on the screen. Peter uses it one time. Peter used it in Acts. We saw one time and here one time. John, James, and Jude don't use it at all. The writer of Hebrews doesn't use the word at all. With the exception of John in Revelation 14.6. So 1 Peter 4.17, we'll look at first. This is the only time Peter uses it in his epistles. Uh, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he uses the verb form evangelizo in one twenty-five. Well, it's interesting. He says, "You don't obey the gospel. What are you doing when you? What, to what are you responding when you obey something? You're responding to a command. The command is stated in Acts sixteen thirty-one: Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a present imperative. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So it's responding to a command from God. And those who disobey, well, they're going to suffer the consequences. The word gospel is used by uh, the Apostle John in Revelation 14.6. The only time he uses the noun in all of, all of his writings, he says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Now, is there a difference between the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of God, the everlasting gospel to preach having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Uh, it's the same gospel. The, you know, often 
dispensationalists are accused of having two different gospels, one for the Old Testament, one for the New. That's because back in the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield said that uh, Old Testament saints were saved by the law. Well, he was wrong. Old Testament saints are saved by grace through faith, just like New Testament church age saints are. It's the object is different. In the Old Testament, the object was the promise of God to provide a Savior who would solve the sin problem. In the post-Christ dispensation, after sin has been paid for and the solution has been provided, then we are to believe that Christ is the one who paid the penalty for sin and that the sin problem was resolved at the cross. So now I've got a couple of really long points here because, well, they have to deal with some of the, uh, all these issues that are brought up. So the verb evangelizo, when I sat down to do this, I was going to have three sentences, and I actually ended up going through every single use of evangelizo in the, in the New Testament. This is the verb. We've been talking about the noun. The verb form evangelizo is used 54 times in 52 verses, and it is often translated having the gospel preached. So you get that through Acts again and again, having the gospel. There's no word for preaching. It's giving the good news, proclaiming the good news. And every time you have evangelizo, I believe you ought to just translate it, proclaiming the good news, because that's that's what this is. But we have preaching the gospel. In fact, every time you have, almost every time you have the word evangelizo or evangelion, the King James, the New King James translate put the word gospel in there. So it's often translated having the gospel preached or preaching the gospel, some form of preaching with the word gospel. In Matthew 11, 5, Luke 20, verse 1, Acts 8, 25, 14, 7, uh, and 15, and 21, that's Acts 14, 7, 15, and 21, Acts 16, 10. Romans 1, 15 and 15, 20, we have the verb both two places in Romans. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and in uh, Galatians 5, 13. It's translated glad tidings when Gabriel appears to Joseph, or to Mary, excuse me, to Mary in, in uh, Luke 1. He says, I am bringing you glad tidings. It's the word evangelizo. He's proclaiming the good news to Mary. Uh, also in 8.1 and Acts 13.32, it's translated as good tidings with the angel choir in Luke 2.10. It's translated as simple gospel, Luke 4.18. It's translated simply as preached, in Luke 4.43, 16.6, Acts 8.40. It's translated as preaching Jesus or preaching the Lord Jesus or preaching him. All of those are basically saying the same thing in Acts 5.42 and Acts 8.35 and 11.20 and Galatians 1.16. It's translated as preaching the word of the Lord. That should be Acts 8, 4, and 15, 35. Preaching the word in one in Acts 8, 8 uh, 4, and preaching the word of the Lord in Acts 8, 30, uh, or Acts 15, 35. Preaching peace in Acts 10, 36. Preaches the faith, Galatians 1, 23. And preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3, 8. So we see that several different objects are given here. Preaching faith, uh, preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that certainly goes beyond that which needs to be believed in order to go to heaven when you die. Preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ goes from 
the basic good news for salvation to understanding uh, some phase two doctrine. So all of that is is present there. So I have some some verses I pulled out of that because they are of significance. Philip is the evangelist in Acts 8. He's talking to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, Isaiah 53, preached evangelizo, uh, evangelized on the basis of Jesus, preached, proclaimed the good news of Jesus to him. So uh, if I were to translate it, I would say proclaim the good news of Jesus to him or explain the good news of Jesus to him. In Acts 17, 18, uh, Paul, a certain going up against Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens, uh, encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he proclaimed the good news to them of Jesus and the resurrection. And they thought the resurrection, Anastasis, was another god. So they were totally confused in their spiritual darkness. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, For if I proclaim the good news, I'll translate it that way, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not proclaim the good news. We are to tell people about the gospel, the good news. In verse 18, he says, What is my reward then? That when I proclaim the gospel, when I proclaim the good news, that I may present the good news of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. And there's a reference. It's very similar in 2 Corinthians 11.7. I had that slide coming up, but Paul writes there, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached or proclaimed the good news of God to you free of charge? See, they're both talking about the fact that Paul did not charge. But that wasn't wrong. I mean, excuse me, that's not the only way to do it. Because at the same time in the first, uh, first Corinthians 9 passage, he talks about how Peter took a wife along and many of the other apostles took their wives along and the believers financially supported them. Paul made a free will decision that he was not going to do it that way. And he doesn't say that it's wrong for others to charge. I make that point because sometimes in many of our churches, uh, we don't charge for things. That's a decision that is not necessarily an absolute decision. Some people get that idea. They say, oh, these people who publish their books and make money from them, let me tell you something. Outside of maybe a handful of authors, truly biblically oriented Christian authors, nobody makes any money off of all these books. The average book, you don't know this, maybe you do, 20,000, you sell 20,000 of your books, it's on, you're a bestseller. The average Christian book that is published sells maybe three or 4,000. Now, if you've got a book that's being used by seminary classes, things like that, then you, you're going to sell a few more. But you're not making that much off of them, okay? So it, it's not a way, and I, I defend that because not everybody has a ministry or an organization that they can put together to do self-publishing. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with um, taking a salary from a church. There's nothing wrong with deciding you're not going to take a salary from the church. Uh, I know of one pastor who was pastor of a very large Baptist church, First Baptist Church in Dallas, and he was a pauper when he started, but he had wise businessmen there who helped him. And they invested a lot of stuff and told him what to invest in. And about halfway through his ministry, he had made enough money from his investments to where he paid back every penny that he had been paid by the church, and he never accepted another penny. But that's not norm, the norm at all. So I'm just making this point because it's not an absolute. So Paul says, I chose not to take any money, others uh, accept money from the local congregations to take care of them. Either way is good, but this is what I chose to do. 
1 Corinthians 15.1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. He's going to use that same language again. By which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, 15.1 and following is really important. We're going to come back and deal with the issues here. Uh, next time, so don't don't think we're just going to bypass it. But when you get down a few verses later, notice at the end of 15.2 he says, uh, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, what would believing in vain entail? Well, he tells us back down in verse 13 and 14, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. So if you have a gospel presentation that does, that denies the resurrection, then it's a faith in vain. Now, as I've been pointing out, and I'll point out many more times, there are many facets to the gospel. And not all of them are, are necessary every time you present the gospel. There are sometimes you may never, you may not mention the resurrection at all. Other times you will. And as I've said before, this confuses people, but you can hear a gospel presentation that Christ died for your sins, and if you trust in him, you'll have everlasting life, and you believe that, and you're saved. You haven't heard about the resurrection, and it's not necessary that every part, every facet of the gospel be presented every time. But if you were to hear the gospel and you're told Christ died for your sins and then he rose from the dead on the third day and say, well, I can believe Jesus died for my sins, but I can't buy that resurrection stuff, you're not saved because you've denied the resurrection. So there's a difference between actively denying the resurrection or explicitly denying the resurrection and then just not being aware of it. Uh, but when you do, you will believe it. But we'll talk about that more next time. And Paul goes on to say, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's the same same ver- uh, word going all the way through this. So the resurrection is important, but you don't have to believe everything. You're not going to hear everything every time you hear the gospel. 2 Corinthians eleven seven, Paul says, Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I proclaimed the good news of God? See, there he uses that. The good news from God is, is the same gospel that you and I believe. Galatians 1, 8, and 9, we'll, we'll come back next time and deal with this in detail. Even if we are, but it... But even if we are an angel from heaven, proclaim any other good news to you than what we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, he repeats himself. I mean, this is one of the few times Paul does that. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone proclaims any other good news to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. Now, he does give us an explanation of, of the gospel. Now, next time I'll, I'll deal with the context more, but in the previous verses, he talks about the gospel, and then he says, and, what, and he is giving the essence of the gospel here. Not every gospel presentation, though. Here the issue is justification by faith alone and not by the law. So he doesn't go into resurrection. He doesn't go into other aspects. He doesn't talk about redemption. He doesn't talk about uh, uh, the burial. He focuses on just one aspect. He says, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So if you believe that, that you're believing in Christ alone, 
then you're saved because you're not trying to be saved by yourself. So not every verse says everything there is to say about a a certain topic. I one time worked for an editor who wanted everything in the book to be said in the first three sentences. You just can't do it. No, there's too many things have too many dimensions. Hebrews 4.2 says, For indeed the gospel was proclaimed to us as well as to them. Who's the them? That's the Exodus generation. They had the gospel proclaimed to them. Was it the same gospel? Yes, it's salvation by grace through faith, but in the in their generation, they looked forward to God fulfilling that promise. We look back to the fulfillment of that promise. So the gospel is the same. It's by grace through faith salvation. In 1 Peter 1.12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have proclaimed the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the gospel is a spiritual reality and is the preaching of, proclamation of it is energized by the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And then in 1 Peter 4, 6, for this reason the gospel was preached also. See, all of these are uses of the verb. So Peter only uses the noun once, but he uses the verb several times. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So the gospel is the means to life, life eternal. When we believe the gospel, we believe it because we know that we're spiritually dead. We understand the problem, and we're not going to go to heaven. And so we understand that we're spiritually dead, but we can have everlasting life and implicit in that is the understanding that the Savior is alive. So it's it's may not get unpacked, but it's evident there. Revelation 10.7, In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So this is the proclamation there. Um, verse 6, uh, fourteen six. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Revelation 10, 7. I just went over those, 10, 7, and 14, 6. Sixth point is that repent is used with the gospel of the kingdom in Mark 1, 5, and I've already covered that. And that's because it's related to the gospel of the kingdom being offered to Israel during those first year, that first year and a half to two years in the ministry of Christ. The seventh point is that most frequently among many who might be lordship as well as most so-called free grace gospel uh, advocates, the issue is often what must be believed in order to have eternal life or the basics that must be explained in evangelism. And on both sides of that debate, they ask the same question, what's, what's the minimum? Well, I mean, not, not so much what's the minimum, but what must I make sure people understand uh, in order to have everlasting life? And what are the basics that we should explain in evangelism? But the, there's other issues related to the meaning and definition of certain terms. And so that's where the, the problem is. In the eighth point, this word group, evangel, evangelizo, evangelion, is used with only rare exceptions in the New Testament to include life, substitutionary payment for sins, uh, to include the life, the substitutionary payment of our sins and the resurrection of Christ, as well as the implications of those events for the one who believes. So rarely does it include all of those. So sometimes it's just focusing on 
the life and the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for our sins. Other times it includes the resurrection. Other times the focus is much broader. It includes everything related to the life of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the implications of that for the newness of life that we have in Christ. So it can be a narrow term or a broad term. It depends on the context. And then nine, just as the sin problem is complex, involving the violation of God's perfect righteousness, the sin penalty of spiritual death, our worthless righteousness like filthy rags, and our position in Adam. So those are just some of the different facets of our condemnation. And comparable to those, the, the solution is expressed in Scripture through various aspects of Christ's work on the cross. Sometimes the focus, like we saw in Galatians 2.16, is on the imputation of Christ's righteousness for justification. In other passages, like Titus 3.5, the focus is on regeneration. John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, other passages, the focus is on reception of eternal life. In others, it's on our redemption. In even others, it's on our forgiveness. People are concerned that their sins will be forgiven them. And they are, that's the focus of the gospel message. And these other aspects are not as relevant to the discussion. So different facets are not different gospels. They are simply expressions of these different aspects of the complexities of what Christ did on the cross. Under point 10, we recognize that there are differences dispensationally. A dispensation is a uh, is an administration of God in history. There are different emphases in the Old Testament from the New Testament. Old Testament anticipated the fulfillment of the redemption promise, and in the New Testament, we look back to it. But John the Baptist offered a gospel, repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was temporary. And once Christ was rejected by the Pharisees and Sadducees as the, Savior, as the Messiah and the Savior, then that was no longer the message. We don't hear that phrase again until you get in Matthew 24 describing the middle point of the tribulation when they will once again be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Because why? At the end of those seven years, the kingdom is coming and the king is returning. So the gospel of the kingdom was not proclaimed from the midpoint of Christ's ministry all the way to the tribulation. And then uh, point 11, and we'll stop here, is what's the focus of the gospel? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, is that all he taught? No, because you get to 1 Corinthians 15, and he's teaching about the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, one of the first things he taught to any group was about prophecy and the rapture. So we know that he taught many other things, but he's talking about the priority the emphasis is on what happens at the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. He did not say that after the burial and resurrection. He said it is finished. The sin penalty was paid for before he was buried and before he was raised from the dead. But all of that is important in understanding what was accomplished at the cross and our salvation. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at some of the key passages uh, for understanding the gospel, Galatians 1, Galatians 2, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But it's important to understand uh, these things. At, at essence, at the bottom line is it's by faith and not by works. And that's the essential problem with lordship salvation is they bring works in the back door rather than the front door. And works rather than the promise of God are the evidence of a true regeneration. But they, as much as they talk about sin, 
It's all, almost all overt sin, and they minimize the ongoing problems of mental attitude sins. And this is a very superficial way of looking at the Christian life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to study these things this evening and to think through uh, the gospel, the great news, the good news that we have everlasting life. We are justified. We are forgiven of our sins. Christ paid the penalty. We're redeemed. We have life eternal. It's a present possession. And so there need be no fear of death, no fear of judgment, no fear of uh, somehow being lost because we have an everlasting Savior and an everlasting salvation. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.